You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast with me, Julia Hobsbawm of Names Not Numbers and Editorial Intelligence in association with the Financial Times. Uh, We're not going to take register this morning, you'll be glad to hear. Uh, But we have had a number of professors say, if all my students got up this early, I'd be really pleased. Um, Which is a lead-in to say that uh, you are at the breakfast session uh, that is going to consider whether universities are connected to real life and whether higher education is becoming lower. Um, So two meaty topics. Um, We have a distinguished panel, but as is ever the case with Names Not Numbers, we have an incredibly distinguished audience. So I know it's early in the morning, uh, but by now... I hope you will have had some coffee, um, and I hope you will feel moved to contribute at various stages during the morning. Um, So let me introduce the panel, and then what I'm going to do is ask them very quickly to give us their take on either what is a university, because people don't often agree on that, or what universities are for, which people argue a lot. But we're going to do that very quickly. We're partly going to do that very quickly to prove that academics can come to a conclusion quickly. Uh, But we're also going to do it quickly to get on to the meat of the morning. Um, So if I may um, introduce the panel. I'm Alice Sherwood, and I work with King's Policy Institute, which is part of King's College London. Uh, and it's a policy institute that links academics with policymakers. Now, I don't know if you count policymakers as the real world, but that's one link into the real world. Uh, King's College was founded in 1829. Uh, its Wikipedia entry claims that it is the third oldest university in England. Uh, this is actually not true. Am I right? I'll settle with four. We'll settle with four. And it was founded for a number of reasons as as part of the great explosion of universities in the 19th century, but very specifically with a strong sense of social purpose and very deliberately to instill Christian principles and be in the service of religion. Uh, And the reason it was founded to do this was as a reaction to what is now University College London, or as they called it, the godless college in Gower Street. (laughs) So it was a university founded in opposition to, or to provide a counterpoint, to philosophers uh, and especially Benthamite utilitarians. Um, It's done rather well since then. Uh, It's got 25,500 students. Uh, It has an extremely uh, prestigious war uh, war studies department, uh, but it also, also has uh, two uh, famous hospitals, Guy's and St Thomas's, uh, representing the medical side, uh, ten Nobel laureates amongst current and former faculty, uh, excellent humanities and law schools, science and social science. Um, so it is at least uh, one person's idea of what makes a university, but it's only one type of university. Uh, and the other point uh, I'd like to make is that we think that this topic is so important 
uh, that we have done what academia does when it wants to do something, which is it founds an institute. And we founded an institute for the study of universities, uh, which is being led by Professor Alison Wolfe, uh, who you may have heard of um, as she just did a review of vocational education uh, for Michael Gove. So one type of university, I wouldn't in any sense say uh, it's the only type. Um, Sarah Churchwell is Professor of American Literature and Public Understanding of the Humanities at the University of East Anglia. Um, she's also, as many of you will know, involved in U UEA's Thought Out, uh, which is a new project that opens, aims to open the doors to academic research and champion the arts and, and humanities. UEA is quite different. Uh, it was founded in 1963, uh, which makes it younger than me, uh, and also makes it one of the so-called plate glass universities. Uh, it's also a research-intensive university, and this is very important uh, when it comes to funding. Uh, fair <laughs> Uh, it's famous, obviously, for its writing in humanities, uh, but it also has four faculties, medical school, um, law school, sciences, and social sciences. Now, Sarah has a particular responsibility for outreach, uh, which involves making the case for the humanities as publicly as possible. Uh, one of the questions I'd love to put to this room is, is a university there uh, to prepare you for a job, or is it there to prepare you for life? Uh, one question you might like to uh, consider. Um, I think it was two years ago at precisely this section, at Names Not Numbers, uh, that Sarah was reviewing the Brown Review, the Brown Review into the funding of universities. And she pointed out that in 67, it's, it's full 67 pages, it mentioned the word arts just once, and that as performing arts. Okay? So, and the word humanities does not appear in the document at all. Uh, so uh, if sometimes you feel that people are uh, getting a little bit worked up about the state of arts funding uh, at present, um, that might give you a clue as to why. Um, she's also the author of several books, uh, as well as writing in The Guardian, FT, Independent, and many others. Um, her forthcoming book about Scott Fitzgerald, I gather she did something rather radical uh, for her research. Um, she read books. I did. I did. I went to books. She went to books and found things that actually weren't on the internet. <laughs> very novel. Very, very modern. Um, Stefan Chambers. Stefan is... Uh, amongst other things, the director of the MBA degree course at Side Business School. Uh, Side Business School was founded in 1996, but it is integrated into and fully part of uh, Oxford University, which was founded some 800 years earlier. Again, a different model uh, of a university there. Um, Side Business School uh, will teach you <coughs> all the core aspects of business, so economics, finance, strategy, and so on. Um, perhaps more unexpectedly is um, Stefan's work uh, with 
the School Centre for Social Entrepreneurship. Um, and I have to say, in my day at business school, if you put social and entrepreneurship together, you would get a sea of baffled faces. Uh, so things have changed. And Stefan may also be uh, the only business school director ever um, with a humanities background. Um, uh, he teaches entrepreneurship, um, and I'd love to know whether that can be taught or whether it can just be caught or whether it's innate, and entrepreneurial finance, and works with the university's technology transfer company. Um, the side business school, for those of you who haven't seen it, is housed in a very handsome state-of-the-art building um, right next to Oxford Railway Station. Um, our last panellist, and this is great, and I think we're now, we've got everyone here, which is fantastic, um, is Shai Rashef. And by contrast to all the other universities, Shai Rashef's students are not taught in any universities, any university buildings at all. Um, because Shai is a real game changer. He has founded the University of the People, um, a virtual online university. Um, he describes it as the world's first tuition-free. I'm going to ask you about tuition-free because my children got very excited about a tuition-free <laughs> university. Um, tuition-free online academic institution dedicated to the global advancement and democratisation of higher education. Uh, so this knocks kings and our social purpose into a cocked hat, I'd say, um, because the aim is to bring high-quality, low-cost um, education within the reach of millions of people across the world and very much with a focus on developing countries. And students have to register properly. Uh, and uh, he's working with NYU and working hard on getting accreditation for this university. Um, and he has 1,600 students so far from 136 different countries. Your class size will be about 20, and you probably will find yourself in a class with people from 20 other countries. Um, uh, your, and the courses are mainly business administration and computer science, but there are general Sorry. arts and sciences too that you're looking at. No, it's, it's, it's as part of the business administration. It's as part of the business administration. Um, so what I'd like to do is, um, with this panel, is just to ask you, Sarah, let's start with you. Great. <laughs> we've got three very different models of university. Mm -hmm. um, we've got one interesting statistic, which is that in the early part of last century, 2% of people went to university. Mm. Uh, by about the 1960s, no, sorry, about the, around about the uh, end of the war, we were talking, end of the war to the 1960s, around 6%. Uh, Are these UK numbers? UK numbers. Uh, we're running at about 45% mm -hmm. at the moment. So this is already a curve that's going up. But I think one of the most interesting things was there was a survey of what I call millennium mothers. So people, uh, women whose children were born in the year 2000, and they were asked, how many of you would like your child to go to university? And 98% said yes. Okay, so this is uh, why we're here. Sarah, what are universities for? Um, Oh, well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wake up now. Um, I think uh, universities are for uh, uh, several things. Um, 
I always, I like what Yates said, which is that um, education is lighting, the lighting of a fire, not the filling of a pail. Um, and, and of course, as, as I don't have to tell anyone here, education means to lead out. Uh, with, you know, universities get all of that, uh, um, the charge of being ivory towers. I liked what Stefan Collini said about that, which is he said, you know, I keep hearing about this imaginary place, um, academics, you know, and I keep hearing that, that, we, that we're in this imaginary place, and it's this imaginary place called the real world, because I'm not really sure where that is um, and why it's different from the place that I inhabit. Um, I think that universities are for the preservation of critical thinking. Um, and, the, and the extension of critical thinking, the passing on of a tradition of critical thinking. I think they're custodians of knowledge. Um, I think that they are for the uh, uh, sustaining of the importance of research, which of course means to search again, to do another search, to, search, to have subsequent searches, um, to try to answer important cultural questions. I think we're for protecting everything that the vested interests would like us not to be protecting and thinking about. Um, and uh, I think that there, we're for sustaining a cultural conversation about, about all of the things that otherwise don't get talked about, uh, uh, for not t necessarily talking about profit, or rather having a much more expansive notion of what profit might look like, to say that's, that we can profit from knowledge in ways that have, uh, that have little or nothing to do with money. Um, and, and I, but I do think there also, as you said uh, a moment ago, or as you implied, that there, there are preparation for life, of which work is, is a necessary part of that for all of us, but by no means the only part. And, and not always the most rewarding part. Obviously, we would all like to be in a position where our work is as rewarding a part of our lives as the other parts of our lives. But of course, that is a, um, a position that, that many people are not, do, do, you know, simply don't have the luxury of. Um, of having, and so the the possibility of of being able to find uh, and and sustain rewarding aspects of of other parts of our life, I think is really important. And also just asking those questions. And so I thought I would actually just end because Alice told us she was going to ask us to say what universities are for. And I think it's important not to try to define them reductively because knowledge is not a reductive thing. Um, but I thought I would I would end if I may, um, and because it is you know 8:30 in the morning, um, with a with a couple of questions that I was recently asked by a female relative of mine. I, I woke up at 5:30 this morning for some reason, and I found myself thinking about these questions. Um, they were my sister passed them on to me because she thought they would interest me, um, and and it seemed to me that it, in a, in an important way they they uh, they get to the hub of the matter. And these are the questions: Dear Santa Claus, I have a few questions for you. How did people, these are verbatim by the way, how did people figure out you? How did you teach reindeer to fly? Does the abominable snowman live in the North Pole? How do elves make electric devices? About how many people give you notes? How do you know if children are naughty? Do you like delivering presents? How did you think up to go down the chimney? Did the Grinch really steal Christmas? Is the Tooth Fairy jealous of you? How do you feel when people or children don't believe in you? And then the last question, do you think I was ever naughty? This is my six-year-old niece. Right? Um, now, I, I, it seems to me that, that anybody who's ever met a, you know, a child between the ages of four and six knows that curiosity is absolutely instinctive. It is absolutely who we are and what we're about. And all of those questions there are about, are about the, even from the age of six, trying to figure out an individual's place in the world among varying belief systems, trying to figure out where we stand in this, and, and not reducing belief systems to questions of, of religiosity, saying that, that you know, what we believe and what we know, questions of epistemology, ontology, phenomenology. I mean, you know, we're asking those from a very young age, and it's universities that prepare us to try to answer those questions. Fantastic. 
Shai, can I ask you, partly what your idea of what a university is for, but also what you hope <coughs> that your students will get out of the university of people? I would start by saying that education is a right, not a privilege. And every single person on earth deserves the right for higher education. And asking whether everyone should, be in a, should have the right for higher education or it should be only for a few, it's like for me, whether every person on earth deserves to have a food. I mean, everyone has the right. Maybe some people don't want to use it. Maybe some people want to try but not to continue, but it's a right. Um, I believe that that's why universities uh, were originally, or that's, that's the justification for universities, and that's how it should be. Saying that, I still believe that some universities should advance the research, should advance the knowledge of the universe. So there are two roles that go together, hand in hand, and both should be, um, should be there. Did I answer? I'm not sure. Only the first bit. What do you think, or what are you hoping that, I mean, this is an amazing vision. What are you hoping that your students will get out of it that they, that they couldn't have got well, without? <clears throat> Our students come to us because they want a better future, a better chance for their future. No doubt. We, we only teach business administration and computer science because... These are the, mo the two degrees that are most in demand worldwide. They are the likeliest to help our students find a job. And for that reason, we teach this job, these, these uh, programs. And that's why the students come to us. They come to us to have a better job. Saying that, we believe that we're doing much more than that. Because every time a student takes a class, he or she is being put together with 20 to 30 students from 20 to 30 different countries. They take 40 courses. It's a regular American BA program. They take 40 courses. It happened 40 times. By the time they graduate, they met people from around the world. We believe that exposing them to different cultures, different way of thinking, open their mind, create a shift in attitude, which is often being carried outside of the classroom. So we have a greater uh, mission, and it is to bring peace to the world, to, make, to bring peace a bit closer. And just picture what happened when students from uh, Israel and I'm an Israeli, every time he takes a class, meet a different Palestinian, every time a Turk takes a class, meet a different Greek, and I can go on for many other countries, India and Pakistan, etc. I believe that uh, eventually we make peace in the world a bit closer, and this is our mission. It's not necessarily why our students come to us, but I know that they appreciate it after they're going through the program. So there's a combination of the very practical training, and then there are the positive, ex there are externalities, good things that happen as a result, but are not necessarily the, the intention of the students. Right, and, and, I, would say, and I would say one more thing, Two-thirds of the, of the program are, you know, if they study business administration, it's business administration courses. One-third are arts and science. Yeah. So we try to create a well-rounded student and not only, it's, mm. not, vo it's, not, only vo it's not vocational mm. studies. So we try really to, to, to develop much more than so-called professionals. 
Stefan, your students, I'm sure, go straight on to very top jobs. Um, and so in that sense, it's a classic business school. But with the Skull Centre, you're trying to do something that is new. Yes, I'm trying to infect our students with a particular kind of virus. Um, but can I start <laughs> by saying a couple of things? Yeah. First? first thing I'd like to say is I'm signed up to Shai's vision. Okay, I'm a fully paid up member of his fan club. Um, um, He's and, on my board. And a supporter <laughs> of the vision that you've just heard, which I think is just one instance of the extraordinary things that universities can do if they think beyond the, some of the debates that <clears throat> we're likely to have. I mean, the subtext of this panel is all the arguments that we've all heard. Are universities for the few or for the many? Are they instrumental or are they disinterested? Are they about critical thinking or conformity? Are they physically located or are they virtually located? Are they about teaching or are they about research? Um, and my rather simple-minded view is that if they're not all of those things and a whole bunch of things we haven't yet thought of, then we're clearly failing. Okay. So there are some very pointed and very straightforward questions. How do we afford to build systems that allow protected spaces for thinkers to worry against the grain of all the people spending the money on the thinking? You know, there are, that's, that's a very profound question, because if you put the source of the money too close to the source of the thinking, you get conflicted thinking. Another very big question is how do we achieve Shai's vision of this being a right for everyone, for every adult person on the planet to have access to the kind of advantage that we know, we simply know empirically that, that um, higher education affords advantages <coughs> to human beings okay, in terms of their connections to each other, their connections to bodies of thinking. Um, and very straightforward material connections. How do we defend universities that are properly disinterested, mm -hmm. properly engaged in uh, the pursuit of um, uh, benefits that are impossible and unnecessary to measure? Mm -hmm. these, are, these are really profound questions, but they won't get answered if we get stuck in these binary positions. Are universities for the many or the few? Well, the answer clearly is both. Mm. You know, should they be physically located or should they be virtual? Well, the answer is clearly both. Is there a degree of conformity that occurs whenever you teach people a bunch of things that they have to learn how to do? Of course. But is that antithetical or, 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 or does, that, does that reduce the, the obligation to be critical? Of course not. Should universities take money from corporations, of course they should, but should they be protected spaces um, uh, that resist being co-opted? Of course they should, and so on. I'm not sure any of those is a, any of those things is an answer to your question, but I've I've um, uh, and and, and to, to go back to your original question, the virus that we attempt to infect our students with in Oxford is a very straightforward one, which is that this. That old opposition, which is between doing well and doing good, um, particularly as it 
applies to the most privileged people in the world is redundant. Okay? You know, that, that, that the world's economies have to internalize the costs of their actions on the world. Um, and they have to um, internalize the social purpose of their actions. Otherwise, we're all in big trouble. Mm. Well, we have what is plainly, uh, I think it might sound at breakfast time, a rather idealistic panel. <laughs> so I just want some <clears throat> views from the floor now. Um, a university uh, should be everything. A university should be a right for everyone. Uh, Sophie. Sophie, just hang on a second for a, for a microphone. Are we, are we, are we in a, a small ivory tower outpost here? Um, yeah, I'm sorry to bring it down to money, but <laughs> um, I have one child who's finishing university and started when it was 3,000 whatever, and I've got another child starting at nine whatever. And I have a lot of friends, and, you know, I'm middle class, who are not sending their children to university now. So it's going to take a dip. Because, and particularly for those that get not that much tuition, they really don't think it's worth it. So kids that would have gone to university three years ago are not going. And it, that's really true. That's it. Quite yeah. Derek. Oh, we might have to wait for a microphone. Okay. Actually, you might want to... Are we being recorded? Yes. Yes. You might want to declare yourself. Uh, uh, I'm Derek Wyatt. Um, you haven't mentioned the word excellence uh, on the panel. Yeah. And I thought the idea of university was that you would attain or try to attain excellence. And if that is an integral part of higher education, can you have 165 universities in the United Kingdom aspiring excellence, surely some are much better than others. If they're much better, what is the point of the others? Okay, so you, you would like universities to be excellent and, and we should do some, we should set aside the mediocre. Uh, well, I'm asking the yeah. question about what do we want from our society? It's fine to say philosophically this is what we'd like. Yeah. In practical terms, we have a lot of universities that are charging the same amount of money as the top five. I can't make any sense of this. So, in a sense, um, are, we're, we're being a little unrealistic here. We're talking, the question is, are universities connected to real life? Uh, that we, we talk about universities should be a right for everyone, um, but the excellent universities are still for the very few. Quite put it that way. Uh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to fathom out yeah. what, what is the purpose. I think it's for excellence. Yeah. Uh, and so, can you have excellence spread so widely? That's uh, the question I'm asking. Yeah. Uh, well, should we take one more and then? <coughs> Martin Davidson. Um, <coughs> I've spent a lot of my time in China, and a very senior Chinese uh, uh, individual told me the other day the great problem with Chinese universities is that they now are, uh, China has a mass. Uh, lack of graduate students for the employment market and the Chinese universities are producing uh, mass groups of unemployable young people. Um, are the universities actually failing in their job or is that actually part of the nature of universities? So, Sarah, would you like to start on uh, excellence of universities and uh, excellence possibly to no purpose that is connected to real life? Mm. 
Yeah, um, uh, I would say, I mean, I, uh, agreeing in, in principle absolutely with what, with what Shai said, I would, I would want to couch it slightly differently, which is that I think that everyone has, it, what we, one of the distinctions we need to make that we are not as a society making, it seems to me, is a distinction between equality of opportunity and equality of ability. And that's the problem that we keep coming back to. And that's the problem that questions like excellence keep coming back to. They come back to a conflation of elite with elitism. And they come back to questions about access and participation. Now, it goes back to what Alice said at the very beginning. In, and that's why I asked the question about the UK, because the numbers that you quoted have nothing to do with North America, for example. No. That is simply not the case in North America, which has had widening access to universities because of things like the GI Bill and, uh, after the Second World War, have been dealing with this question in different ways. And I'm not suggesting that they're more successful ways. They're different questions, and they're different ways of dealing with them. I was amazed when I came over here. I moved here in 1999, two years after Tony Blair took power. I loved watching him yesterday say education, 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 because I was amazed when I came here and, and found that he had, he had decreed that 50% of the population should go to university. And I thought, why, what, well, what happens to the other 50%? And everybody seemed to think that that was absolutely brilliant. This was completely fabulous, 50% of the population. I'm like, oh, so the other half is screwed? I mean, how exactly is this supposed to work? And everybody said, oh, well, this is a pragmatic response. The, the, the problem, it seems to me, and the analogy that I've used before, and, and um, you all may not agree with this, but when people talk about the, what they want teachers to be doing, it seems to me that the closest analogy we have is something like coaches for athletics. So that when I'm, when I'm told that I'm responsible for what my student does or what they learn, right? I can't, learning isn't something I hand them, it's something they do. Um, so I can only show them how to do it and model it for them and try to give them good practices. Like a, a coach can give nutrition and teach you how to run better and teach you how to do all of those things. I can't make you an Olympic athlete. But it also isn't the case that everybody should become an Olympic athlete or indeed has the ability to be an Olympic athlete. But it is the case that everybody should have the opportunity to find out. And we still want a nation of fit people. So regardless of whether everybody can be, you know, a, a, you know, the kind of, you know, runner who's breaking the, the marathon record that, you know, Ed Caesar is, is following, that doesn't mean that we want everybody sitting around obese and not ever getting any exercise at all. And so I think, I actually think that, of course, we, we need to be protecting the, the, the issue of excellence. But what you have in this country is an historical situation in which is it is as if, in order to get on the Olympic team, you had to know the right people. It wasn't actually about your ability. It was about the fact that your father went, got on the Olympic team, and then your mates got on the Olympic team. And that's why here there is so much anger and frustration about this question about, um, about elitism and access, um, because, it, because it does play into the historical class uh, inequities and prejudices, and that's something that that all of the uh, of the new policies um, about universities have totally failed to deal with in any way at all, as far as I can see. Um, and I've got a question for you, Sarah, which is. Um I read that in uh, quite a few American universities, the sports coaches were actually paid more than the presidents oh, yeah. of the universities. Oh, absolutely, because okay. it's, because it's a it's a it's a it's a money it's a, a money raising venture. But the other thing to say here, and it goes to the question about tuition fees as well, is that one of the things that the elite universities in America, um, Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, have all done, because people here like to really um, like that's a, a stick that they like to um, to beat America with, is you know everybody knows that you graduate with hundred thousand dollars of individual student debt or m more, um, but actually that isn't the case anymore with all universities. It is with some. But what Harvard, Princeton, and Yale have done is they have so much money. They have so much money now um, because they've been fundraising since the 17th century. 
Um, they actually have, uh, I know for a fact that Princeton students, undergraduates, uh, graduated in 2011 with an average per capita debt, personal debt, of $2,500. They have, they, have, they have now made it so that people are graduating debt free. It is possible to do this, and they have a very complicated model whereby they do this. Um, it's not to say that education is cheap, and that also goes to the point. I understand people being angry about the, the tuition fees hike, and I think it's particularly reprehensible because of the ways that people weren't allowed to prepare for it. In America, you know it's going to cost the earth, and you have a chance to prepare for that. As soon as you have a child, people start creating various kinds of funds for them. I'm, of course. They're going to make can I just, can I, can I just, oh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I just, can you, can you announce yourself? Yes, Jane and Grady, and just for the purposes of this, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm visiting lecturers at, at a university. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Jane O'Grady, and I'm a visiting lecturer at a university, so I'm not, you know, full-time or anything. But, but, um, but what, what strikes me is there is this absolute dichotomy with universities, and I think it was sort of implied earlier, in a way by Stefan saying it needs to be both and, right. between the ones that actually, to, to use your sporting metaphor, hand on the baton of learning to the next generation who are going to improve it, yeah. and the ones who literally are, and I'm afraid... The university I teach at is like this, just really carrying on school, spoon feeding, because that's how mm. education has become. Getting, I mean, in a way, patronising the students so that they are looked after and got up to a certain speed. They have not learnt to think for themselves. The whole, the irony is, just to, sorry, we're, we're, I used to teach in comprehensives, and long ago, and the whole idea was no more rote learning, no more parroting, you know, it's, 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 all, it's, it's all been such a waste of time. So everybody said that. Now they are rote learning and parroting for their third year exams Absolutely. in university. Absolutely. What is the point of going to university if it's like that? They have not learned to, to, to think for themselves. They've not learned to praise that, That's the, the, the main thing. They've not learned to actually extract, extract information, extract, yeah. digest it, and then vomit it out. Yeah. You know, I mean, well, whatever. <laughs> in, a, in a sort of superior, excellent yeah, way. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, that, that was a long question, but I, but I just think there's, there's a problem between, you know, the top universities where, as he says, that the, the, the fees are going to be the, the, the same as the, the other ones. The top universities, obviously, the baton is being handed on. The next, the next generation of students is going to be the great thinkers and so on of... of the future, but then there are the other ones where they're just going to be patted on the head. Here's your hand handout, yeah. and you know, try and know your. You know, you, you can't understand it, but never mind. We'll give you good marks. We'll just repeat it. And yeah. I just oh, shy. <laughs> but hang on to the, hang on to the microphone because oh, I've got a okay. question. Can I just actually a question for you? Because your your subject is philosophy. Yes. Okay. So my my other question is: when you want them to learn to think for themselves, um, is it for the sake? of the subject, or is it so that they become better bankers or lawyers uh, in the life, in life after yeah. university? Why, why do you want them to think for themselves? Well, that, yeah, that was a, what a good question. I mean, one, one thing is, I want them to be, I'm not a good philosopher. I, I'd like them to be good philosophers. I, I'm just disappointed that there aren't people in any of the classes who are going to startle me by... And I, so that I think, my God, you know, here's right. here's here's going to be a, another great philosopher right. for the next. And and but I agree for themselves. I just want to excite them. I mean, you know, just as I do with with did in comprehensive, yeah. just excite them, make them think for themselves, and and and. 
doesn't matter about their ju just for their personal sort of individual lives, not irrespective of so what they do. So there has to be more than knowledge transfer. There has to be some. Oh spark. yeah, of course, of course. There yeah. absolutely, of course. And what I'm complaining is that there isn't even knowledge transfer. Right. That, that it's just parroting. Okay. In fact, it's, it's just all the waste of time. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to the price issue and mm. that you raised. Yeah, I wanted to know I, how you do tuition free. I, that's a secret. I can't <laughs> you can well, you can proprietary information. Uh, yeah, uh, fair uh, enough. Uh, uh. <laughs> well, we we are tuition free because we use everything that is free um, on the net. We use uh, we only use open um, open source technology open educational resources, which is content that people put on the net for the rest of the world to use, and volunteers. We have, uh, we have accepted 1,500 students with 3,000 volunteering professors coming from the best universities, and they are the people who, who are our academic leadership, the people who teach our students, the people who write the material. And we operate from several places around the world, so it's, we save cost, and we use a model of peer-to-peer -peer learning to save cost as well. So, which, that's not the reason we do it, but it saves us money as well. So we are tuition-free. By the way, we ask our students to cover the cost of exams. Every time they take an exam, and we tell them that it costs us $100 per exam. We expect them to pay for the exam if they have it. If they don't, we offer them scholarships. So the mission is that nobody would be left behind mm -hmm. for financial reasons, but if they have the money, we expect them to cover the cost of exams. I think that what we're doing more than anything else is we're building a model to show that higher education can be way less expensive than what it is right now. And I believe that our model, and especially when we, we will become sustainable, which we are going to be with 5,000 students, in 2015, 5,000 students paying $100 per exam, we are sustainable. We show other universities that it's possible. And I believe that we press the prices down. Now, we are not the only one, and there are the MOOCs that spread the knowledge for free, and there are a lot of new initiatives. And what I believe is that along the time, there will be quite a few universities, the best one, that will be able to charge premium price. And I believe that some universities, even if they charge 100,000 pounds a year, they will have enough students coming in, with scholarship or without scholarship. But the rest of them will go down. And if we are tuition free, there will be other universities that will use the internet, that will use whatever is available out there to drive the prices down. So I think that differentiation of pricing is the next stage of higher education. Mm, I agree. Maxine, just before we, before we get into the full, yes. I'm Maxine Taylor, King's College London. I was just going to say thank you to Shai for that comment because the whole concept of MOOCs, Massive Open Online Courses, and what's happening there at the moment is fascinating and terrifying in equal measure depending on where you sit on that whole debate. So King's has just joined a consortium of between 15 and 20 universities working uh, with uh, an organisation called Future Learn, which is born out of the Open University. And it's a time, I think, of great potential experimentation. I think you're absolutely right about price structures. I think the whole concept of pricing within higher education in the way it's constructed at the moment has got to be short-lived because A, people won't buy it and we're hearing that in the room already and B, it's not sustainable. I mean even a £9,000 fee, amazingly, for some courses, particularly on the sciences side, will not 
uh, cover that. And research currently in the UK is not covered. The infrastructure costs are not covered um, by, by the fees that we're able to charge. Um, an awful lot of it, if you, if you have funding from one of the research councils, you'll get 40% of the infrastructure costs. If it's charitable funding, understandably, it's probably more like 20%. So there's already a funding deficit within the system. It's not sustainable on that basis. And uh, I think everybody should be looking at MOOCs as an opportunity to give broader access to students anyway, as a point of principle. And that's absolutely in the current environment that we're in at King's that I think we feel very, very strongly about as well, um, that we'd like to be able to get people of the best ability able to have access to university without question anywhere they want to go. Thank you. Ian's had his hand up since the beginning, I should say. He's had his hand up since the very beginning. Thank you for that. <laughs> okay. uh, my name's Ian Hutchison. I'm a surgeon. I'm a professor of surgery at Barton in London. And, of course, we're uh, uh, strange because we are an apprenticeship um, training for a career. So um, it is the ideal of the business model, which is put people in universities, they come out, they've got a job for life, and that's it. Um, but uh, I have several things that I wanted to say. The first is joy. Um, and uh, <laughs> when I was studying medicine, uh, the, the dean of the medical school said, we're not here to teach you uh, the facts. We're here to teach you how to learn to continue learning. Um, and uh, actually, uh, if you learn throughout your life, then you have joy. Um, so uh, one of the things is that I think if we're looking at the lowest common denominator that a university should achieve is teaching people how to learn for life and the joy of learning. Um, we're not necessarily getting that in schools. Um, the second problem we have is that when we look at prisons, so I'm going on a completely different tack now, when we look at prisons, what we see is illiteracy, um, uh, uh, people who are below the poverty scale, who are helpless, hopeless, don't have joy in their life, never have had joy in their life, um, never have learnt the joy of learning. Obviously, we've got to start at a younger age, and so we should, um, maybe universities should be contributing towards that. So, as an applied scientist, if you like, when I go in and talk to schools, and give a talk to a classroom of school children uh, on biology or physics or chemistry, which for them is incredibly boring, when I bring it down to real life and to a human being having an operation and anaesthetics or something like that, then it becomes interesting. And maybe university educators who are great communicators should be going back to right at the beginning, uh, maybe at the beginning of the secondary school, uh, to teach the joy of what they're doing to those people. Now, the third thing I want to come to is uh, my own personal experience um, with my children, because somebody else talked about their children. So my oldest uh, child, who's now 29, went back to university, never been to university, went to university at 25, and it was appalling. Uh, it was one of the new universities, uh, no teaching support whatsoever. It was all done. Here are the lectures um, you know, on the internet. You look at them, you come along. Uh, how could you meet the, the, the uh, lecturer afterwards? You had to make an appointment 
one for one hour, one day a week, that lecturer was available to talk to you, and in fact was never available. So the kind of support that was given to that person in a higher education establishment was worse than they get in school. Yeah. Um, and the final point I want to make is the £9,000 is nothing. The problem is that that £9,000, as I think you've alluded to, Chai, is it is the breaking down of a watershed and it is the opening up of the floodgates to people paying £100,000 in different universities. Mm. And so we have turned our universities, in some cases, into financial institutions. Uh, you've got to get a high RAE thing, now the REF, um, because, and it's very easy for surgeons and doctors because we, we can get research grants yeah. uh, for pure... Try, uh, try showing impact in philosophy. Well, yes, exactly. exactly. But, of course, philosophy is about learning how to learn and it's about the joy of learning, and that can translate into so many spheres. We've become so mechanistic. Speaking from a mechanistic profession, mm. I don't like the idea of me mechanistic things. I believe in the humanities. I actually believe in the humanities of medicine. And if I'm teaching people just how to do an operation, that is bloody useless because they have to look after the patient beforehand to prepare them for it. They have to care for the patient afterwards. It's all about humanity. It's not about anything else. So... In, I think in all spheres, we have to support the humanities, we have to cherish the humanities, and we have to move away from this kind of thing of universities are about earning money um, and not necessarily providing good support for the students. Well, I think, thank you very much indeed for that. Um, I, I want to take up your point about teaching. Uh, we've got, <laughs> okay, what I'd like to do, forest of hands, is I think it's very interesting that on one hand we're talking about the future, um, uh, uh, millions uh, getting a university education tuition free, and yet we're hearing that some of the most important thing, and this is after all why we're here, is that face-to-face -face contact and that sort of uh, passing on of the baton or of the spark. So I'd like to take Prof on teaching, if I may, and also uh, Stefan, because you have uh, what is, on the face of it, uh, like Ian's, a very vocational course, but the spark matters. Well, I, I, it, thank you, Alice. I mean, it's, it's Simon Sharma, and um, I, I've been a university professor for these, no, more than four decades, actually. Hell. So I was pretty much around when the Victorians invented the idea of the modern university. I did want to ask um, Shai and Stefan particularly, so I think we have a clear sense from her own eloquence of what Sarah believes teaching to be. And we've come round to that with Ian's remarks and Jane's remarks. But since we're having two different conversations, I wanted particularly Shai to give me a sense of what he talks about. You, you just mentioned very interestingly all those volunteer professors, what is it exactly they're doing in relationship to their students? To answer um, Ian's point and Jane's point about um, university being the opening of minds to critical thinking, if we, and it's not an issue, I think, just of you know, the fact that you're specialising in computer science and business administration, well, business, let's call it business. You can't possibly, it seems to me, engage with the nature of business now, speaking not as someone who's much good at it, without a sense of justice, without a sense of equity, without a sense of considering the distribution of pain when business goes wrong. Those are all philosophical issues. I'd be thrilled to hear, or I'd love to hear, what the philosophy element in your business instruction courses are. I also want to say um, 
and I suppose it's not so much a question, but there's something, it's almost like a dirty little secret that's not really been acknowledged, which would bewilder those Victorian um, idealists about the university. Um, and even those at my university, which is Columbia University, which after the First World War, naively or disingenuously, or for whatever reason, was convinced that the fate of freedom, and it was, yes, it was defined in the terms that would be recognized by J.S. Mill and Milton's Areopagitica and Jefferson's treatise on toleration, but the fate of freedom depended on preserving and passing on and exposing the greatest accomplishment of human minds. And we are one of the few colleges in America that uh, adheres to what's called a core curriculum. Whatever disciplines you're going to go on to, however you're going to go on to you know, make your money, you are going to be exposed to Dante and to Shakespeare um, and to, um, all, not, it's not just, um, not just literature either. Um, to um, Adam Smith, but when you do Adam Smith, you're going to read the theory of moral sentiments as well as the wealth of nations. And the characteristic approach of students, some, some students come to Columbia knowing that and relishing the opportunity to do that. Um, it's combined with, of course, with the prohibition of Columbia, as in most American colleges, against being able to take um, medicine and law as undergraduate degrees. The, the, a, lot of, a lot of students, though, grumble a bit, but it's, it's almost always the case when we take surveys that they identify the core curriculum as the most enriching, most satisfying, um, most pleasurable, to invoke Ian's lovely, mm. passionate statement about the joy of learning when they finish. So I just thought, that's, I don't know how to turn that into a question. I suppose the question is, has that anything to do yes, with... Your, your question, Caller. Is, is it in danger? Does anybody care about that anymore? Yes, well, yes, yes, yes. we do. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll turn to Stefan in a minute. But thank you, thank you for the, the passionate defence of the liberal arts. Well, just what, one point, I suppose, about Simon, who cares is that this is an incredibly producer-driven conversation, yeah. even yes. though there are new producers. We've got some market, but yeah. Well, we've got some new producers, but it's essentially a producer-driven conversation yeah. in which we're desperately trying to work out you know, how we get people to want what we produce. And one of the points about universities is simply to be with other young people in large numbers to experiment. And there are all sorts of social benefits to university which are, are going to become more important. And the reason they're going to become more important is because if university is a means to an end, and the end is a credential, and the credential is a job with a higher wage, then the, the future is MOOCs. I mean, the future is a sort of Toyotaization of education in a sort of iTunes kind of way. Why wouldn't you just go online and click on the range of MOOCs that you want to join to get the accreditation that you want in the time you want, as quickly as you want, uh, and off you go into the job market. And so if education in general, and particularly universities, simply become a means to an end, then people will find new means. So it has to be something more than that. And it has to amount to something which has a sort of value which isn't just about instrumentalism. It has to be about some quality of the experience. And that either, it seems to me, has to be social, and in which the other students 
are vastly more important than the teachers, basically. Um, and what the students are able to do with one another really, really matters. And secondly, it seems to me that universities, if they become defensive and run scared of the MOOCs and say, gosh, how do we respond to that? Let's be like them. Let's become more efficient. That is absolutely death. So you have to have universities which will mix disciplines, which will mix where they learn, which will create new kinds of qualifications, new kinds of capabilities, and it will belong, that future will belong to people who do things differently. And my bet that is that as a result, it will be, you know, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Oxford, you know, kind of kings, but it will also be um, uh, not Trinity and University College Dublin, but Dublin City University, the third university in Dublin, which has got a really interesting curriculum. So the really interesting forces in universities will come from outside, as it seems to me, a new entrance. And so that's the real challenge. And the dead end is Jane's. The dead end is machine-driven university education, it seems to me. That is the... It's what no, Jane is arguing, yeah, yeah. It's no, what no, Jane is arguing against. No, no, it's where you what are. What you described. The, the institution that what, you describe... what you didn't like. ...is the kind of... Is the <laughs> Not what you do. <laughs> no, you do. Don't... don't sorry. <laughs> but can I just ask More you one happen. question? Because yeah. we're, we're, instrumentalism is very important, because we, at, at, at some point you're trying to... We're trying to get to what is it about a, a higher education that is more than the job you will get yes. uh, in the future. And when you talk about the social side, tell me what you might be talking about, because a lot, it seems, particularly at a prestigious university, of it's what you are matching. buying is yeah, being yeah. the future class, exactly. the future year of 2013. Yes. You are buying, yes. and I think this is very true, so I want to come to Stefan, uh, it's, it's very, very true about a business school education. So apart from the late-night parties... What do you mean by the value? Well, I, I would of say the social that side. What you have to what you have to say is, in the world that you're going to live in, your ability to collaborate with others to find difficult and interesting questions is going to be critical. Absolutely. And so, every course you do, we are going to get you to do aspects of that, and then that cuts across. I've fed this, felt this myself. At, at your institution, when you try and do that with students, they say, yeah, but what do we need to do to get the mark, to get the grade, to mm. get the... And you say, no, no, we can do that, but why don't you just do this as well? Yeah. And it's that, I think. There's yeah. something about that. There is a great essay by Jerry Cohen, the former late Marxist philosopher, called The Truth in Conservatism, in which he talks about his rubber. It's this kind of main case. And he says, look... I've got this rubber, and I know there's a better rubber, and if I just want to erase things, I can get a better rubber, but I'm really attached to my rubber. And there's something about my rubber that really counts. And there's got to be something about universities which is a bit like Jerry Cohen's rubber. It's something about this kind of place that really counts. And at the moment, I don't think we are articulating but that in any kind of... There's a, reason, there's a reason that this conversation is so is such a big, baggy monster. When we talk about universities, we're talking about things that are genuinely contested. You know, we're talking about things that we don't yet understand, we believe. And, and there's, another, there's another kind of, there's an even bigger dirty secret in the university conversation, which is that, that all the things that we think might be true here are probably not true everywhere else. So we're used to, we've grown up with a fairly comfortable consensus about liberal, humane, privileged, selective education and its virtues. And we see that consensus 
under attack. What we also need to think about is what does it look like everywhere else? So Martin's question, you know, what, what happens if you have, as it were, Toyota, but they're, but they're, but they're producing students who, who are not fit for the world? So there's a whole set of other questions. You know, take a look at the world and, and ask yourself what is newly emerging. Okay, for the first time ever, everything is correlated. Okay? The financial crisis taught us that. Okay, there is nowhere in the world in which really catastrophic things uh, won't happen if they start to happen. Okay, this is true at the climate level. It's true at the energy level. It's true at the viral level, it's true in uh, the, the complex interactions of fertility, mortality, and migration. It's true. Everywhere you look, things are pretty complicated. If you then map that stuff onto what universities do, you see an extraordinary mismatch. So then you're in a conversation which says, well, who decides what the most uh, appropriate form of resilient capacity is? Okay. Now, in this room and in this society, the, the, the clear consensus is it's something to do with critical thinking. It's something to do with what you might call revised enlightenment. It's something to do with being disinterested and adaptive and socially literate and philosophically competent. Okay. But that's not true if your entire culture is about the, the, the average net labor cost. Okay? It's not true if, the, if excellence is actually simply a correlation with conformity and quantitative test capacity. It's not true if, you are, if the biggest question you face is inundation or drought. Okay? It's, suddenly, it's suddenly this stuff that we think is absolutely off the agenda, which is kind of instrumental, you know, only, only fund universities if they produce people who have productive capacity and all of that kind of rather banal and we all think stupid vision. As soon as you take this conversation radically more macro and, and global and then you start to align it, with things that could kill us off, you know, pandemics could kill us but off. The only, the only thing that I would, the only, the only thing that I would add to, to that as a qualification is that all around the world you find people wanting to solve problems, yeah. and they need the kind of knowledge and skills that you get at university. So problem-solving, collaborative education uh, is absolutely I vital. And, and in that, that these was places. not an argument for uh, instrumental definition of university. It was an argument again for a much, much more complex argument about what universities are for, and a warning that our consensus that has to do with that with our feeling threatened in our humane values is not the whole story, though we should continue to feel threatened and we should continue to defend those values. Um, Nigel, would you like to comment on that? Are we in a, a, an ivory tower of our own here? Nigel Cameron, well, just, you know, I run a think tank in Washington on technology in the future, and I have, in fact, worked in universities in America. And I, actually, I think I agree with what each of our panellists has said. I always agree with Sarah because it's terrifying if one doesn't agree with her. <laughs> Um, so that's, that's taken us red. Um, I, I mean, it seems to me... Um, oh, you flatterer. <laughs> that too. Um, fra frame of reference, in 10 years' time, we're going to have the emergence of huge global MOOCs on a, on a Toyota, Google scale. We may have 10 major brands, we may be three or four, there may be hundreds of them. Can I, can I just ask, is everybody here up to speed on MOOCs, or would they like... Massive online open courses, basically... Yeah, uh, okay. everyone's nodding. Smart online education, in which basically the marginal cost is zero. 
That is the key point. And there are, there are costs involved, but the marginal cost and, is due. And there are no entry requirements. Well, if they're open, that's the point. If like the open, open university, you, get, you just get segregated as you go up. Now, this is going to happen. I think there's absolutely it's no doubt about happened. that. But 65% of Coursera's students are graduates. I mean, it's, worth, it's, it's just worth getting into some of the numbers, because the notion that MOOCs, as, as it were, stand instead of the systems that we're talking about is probably, at least to date, false. Well, this is why I'm talking about in seven to ten years' time. But, I mean, even Claire Christensen is now saying this stuff. This is, this is pretty mainstream. You've got to think ten years ahead. You can't think now. This, this is what we do in my think tank. But my point is, I, I think we have to assume that's going to be the case. Now, from, I expect this to sweep away 90% of our current higher education institutions. I think there are going to be no jobs for PhDs. It's going to be a huge issue. Well, there are already no jobs for PhDs. Oh, great. Well, that solves that problem, doesn't it, Sarah? Um, I also think it solves the problem that I otherwise would have asked about um, earlier, uh, that is to say, of how we cope with this vast expansion of an idea of education that really worked when you had about 10% or so into this mass thing. I'm very happy with it. I'm not against doing it, calling them all universities, treating them all the same, nods and winks, you know, the whole elite elitism thing. Um, this, this will be resolved because it'll be the elite brands which will survive in current form. Now, what surprises me, and this is in fact a question, what surprises me, perhaps it's different, is why we do not see innovative approaches being taken by institutions like those represented here to develop, if you like, humanities-based MOOCs. To, I mean, no one's ever even referred to poor Cardinal Newman yet. Today, I was waiting I, for him, waiting for him. You've lost me my bet. My <laughs> was, I was having a small bet at the first yeah. person to mention Newman, and it was yeah. going to be said. Uh, well, <laughs> he's walking up and down. I can just see him yeah. pacing up and down, okay. holding, holding his book, The Idea of the University, for those who don't know. Well, I'm sure not everybody, everybody knows. knows. <laughs> um, but the point is, I mean, if you like, a sort of Newman-based global MOOC, um, I'm going to talk to, about, to people at UNESCO about this on Friday, in fact, of this week. I'm trying to get USC idea. I'm sort of going around having these conversations. We need these things to be done now, to be done from the West, to be done at least to challenge the Chinese in Africa, all kinds of strategic reasons for doing this, and not least to challenge those who are going to come up with merely technologically MBA-type approaches to higher education. But I think it's going to happen. One way it may actually happen is, for example, you might get the US Chamber of Commerce and three American states coming with their own accreditation of a MOOC. Forget the credit models, they're all going to go. European state control says they're going to go. We're going to have new global accreditors coming up with very high standards for degrees, which cannot be controlled by these systems. Now, I think we've got to work back from that kind of scenario and work out how we can actually pad our way into it um, with the humanities, with appropriate standards, and not least with our concern for the integrity of what we're doing. That's all I was thinking. Thank you. So nothing I, less than complete revolution. <laughs> I, think we, anyway. I think we overstate this notion that if you deregulated higher education, the entire world would move towards what you might call high-utility maximising behaviours, and everyone would automatically do uh, engineering, computer science, business, uh, you know, Let's, let's leave it at those three. I don't think that's true. And I think if you, if you also run that future alongside changing demography, okay, I think it's even doubly less true. Because people will... This notion that you go to university when you're 18 and then maybe again when you're you know, 25 okay, is, 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 is not sustainable. People will be going in and out of this form of education over an extended lifespan, and where the utility of, let's call it in shorthand, humanities education actually goes up rather than stays flat or goes down, because it's no longer competing with the notion that if you're 21, you've got to get hired to do something that is 
that, that, that is mechanistic. So I think, again, unsurprisingly, this notion, you know, on the one hand an MBA, on the other hand philosophy, that's a bad, that's, this is a bad and unproductive opposition. If MBAs don't start understanding that it's about justice and thinking, they're in big trouble. And if we collectively, as it were, the humanities um, it, um, establishment don't understand that we occupy a failing and fractured consensus about our our purpose, we're in trouble too. So, you know, our arguments on behalf of the humanities in my lifetime, institutional arguments, have been absolutely uh, hopeless. I mean, institutionally and comprehensively hopeless until recent years, and, and Sarah's brilliance notwithstanding, they have historically not been good. Oh, absolutely. They've been, they've been appalling. I mean, I think this is a really important thing that, that, um, that we need to address from within, which is the, the, the trend within humanities in the last kind of 30 to 40 years, the, the broadly theory-tastic you know, 1990s, um, within which I was educated. Uh, anyway, um, the, the problem of, of the, the self-marginalization of humanities educators exactly. and thinkers, the fact that they made themselves irrelevant because they made themselves incomprehensible and they thought that that was actually going to make them more professional. Um, and, and that is something that I feel very strongly about that, that I agree needs to be addressed. That said, it is also the case that we are being dismantled from without in important sorts of ways. I mean, I would just simply um, point out, I mean, there's so many things I want to say to all of this, but very quickly, the, the Brown Report, which is driving so much of what's happening now, and, and Alice mentioned my, uh, my horror at it, um, one of the other things that came out afterwards was the fact that, they, that their uh, entire cost for that um, for that survey, they spent, speaking of what things cost, they spent £120,000 uh, in total to figure out the future of uh, higher education in Britain, and of which £68,000 was spent on research, of which none of which was international, of most of which went to a one opinion survey that they didn't publish. So the, the notion that there's any kind of... Um, it, it seems to me, sorry, I'm just going to uh, say that what to me is the most important thing here, and it else goes to Charlie's point, but the, the, we've always had degrees that were for sale. Degrees have been for sale for a very long time. Mail order degrees. Write your check. You don't have to learn a damn thing. You get your degree. You get your accreditation. Gillian McKeith has one of those, apparently, right? This kind of, you know, she claims... Dr. Keith. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So there have always been meaningless degrees. Um, and accreditation. This is just a new means of, of creating that. What it seems to me we're not ever going to, to lose and what we're not ever going to lose the need for, and this is why I started with that question about, about ability and opportunity. We're never going to lose the need for people who can think and for people who can think creatively and solve problems. Um, so in a sense, it doesn't matter to me what the institution is that delivers the ability to teach people to think. Um, what, we are, what we are in danger of is exactly what Jane was talking about, is, 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 is failing to do that because of all the systems that are that are driving towards us. One of the things that drives me crazy about UK education is the fact that now universities are under the Minister of Business, Industries, and and whatever, and and Michael Gove is doing something completely different with schools, as if schools and universities have nothing to say to each yeah. other. Um, so everything has has been you know kind of broken down. And the and the question that Ian asked also about about um, access to teachers and and also goes to to Charlie's point about about the social aspects of university. I think the social aspects of university are incredible important. I would say that that interaction with teacher is also a social interaction. Um, 
and that the but also learning is a social thing. It is it is not simply a question of going out and partying and, and even the, the the class that you will become a part of you know later in life. It is also that you learn from each other, peer to peer learning, all that kind of thing. Um, but just one last point that also with the the teachers thing, the other the other issue, the reason why students no longer have access to their teachers is because their teachers are in meetings because their teachers are in the, this totally bureaucratized uh, uh, system in which they're they're having to actually be the administrators at the same time, and so they can't actually do the teaching or the research that they're supposed to be doing. So, Derek, <laughs> and we've got about which one is why more a brain drain oh, is, I was is, say, uh, five is more minutes. Yeah, I was on one more minute. Great. Uh, three disconnected thoughts. Uh, there's a, there's a, not just talking about China. There's a thousand universities in China. I think there's Nottingham University, the Leeds University, of Bradford Association of Universities that are in Shanghai and Beijing, but they're going to get closed. And they're in Malaysia because, too. Because um, the Chinese introduced them because they wanted the sort of Socratic method, because they thought that would be a good thing, and they thought we did it best here. But actually it started to chip, they've been asking questions, they don't want them to ask questions. So, uh, secondly, that's the point. That's, but that's yeah. the point. Secondly, in, <laughs> that's the whole India, point. In, no, <laughs> universities promote free thinking. <laughs> that will never do. Hold on, in, in, in India... We, I've been told we've got five minutes in, left. So. No, in India, they've decided at master's level that it's really important to have computer scientists. So they have 650,000 coming out a year, and they're doing one-year courses in 50 weeks. It's a continuous system. They just get two weeks off at Christmas. It's a fantastic system. I can't tell you how brilliant it is. We don't want to do that. Thirdly, Cambridge raised, on a bond, 850 million pounds. Now, if they were to raise two or three more of those bonds, they could be completely independent of the state. So are the exclusive universities in this country, are they trying to move themselves out of the state system, and what are those implications? Okay, so yes, I think... Is the answer. Yes, yes, they are. Yes, yes, is, they can. yes is the answer. Um, we've just touched on, as you said, um, Stefan, what is a vast and uh, baggy subject, um, because it touches on so many parts of lives. Um, we've had universities as everything uh, from the opening of minds and the fate, the very fate of freedom. Uh, we've, I think, been rightly accused of being uh, looking too much at this uh, from the producer side. Um, no. Only five, okay, this is the beginning of a conversation. Um, only the beginning. Uh, and we've heard from uh, Nigel uh, that there might be changes uh, that will sweep away 90% of existing institutions um, and a call for a, a Newman-based global MOOC. Um, but I think what's also come across very strongly is uh, the sense that um, we are moving into a new era where lifelong learning and uh, almost a disaggregated structure uh, so that uh, we can have universities without buildings, or I think, as Stefan was hinting, uh, university learning across time uh, rather than concentrated into three years. Um, I think this and conversation... Rather than, as well as. As well as. And I think this conversation is going to carry on a lot more, um, but I know that we have to wrap, so I'd like to leave you with... Um, uh, the uh, definition of university uh, that I found earlier, which was from uh, Robert Maynard Hutchins, who was the president of the University of Chicago, uh, who once defined a university as a set of schools and departments held together by a central heating system. <laughs>
This was later amended by the legendary Clark, uh, who's the Chancellor of uh, University of California, uh, as a set of schools and departments uh, held together by a common grievance over parking. <laughs> and on that note, I'm going to close the session. Thank you very much to our panel. Thank you to Stefan. Thank you to Shai. Thank you to Sarah. Thank you all of you. That was the Names Not Numbers podcast. There are many more on namesnotnumbers.com. Thank you for listening.